Let's have a moment of prayer together. Lord, we thank you and we rightly put on record that your faithfulness endures from one generation to another. And so we come to you today as we are with all of our potential for good and indeed sometimes for ill, in joy and in sadness, in hope and despair. Yet we come resolved to trust you, whatever our circumstances are, and not simply to rise above our circumstances, but to trust you even in the difficult times. We thank you for today. We pray for your blessing. Guide us and lead us so that we might be in the Spirit on this your day. And we pray in your name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 16. Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha. But you will not eat of any of it. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and the great army. So that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them. We went into the Aramean camp and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeeper, gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I'll tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we're starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking 
they'll surely come out. And then we will take them alive and get into their city. One of his officers answered, Make the men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left there. Yes, they will only be like all the Israelites who are doomed. So let's send them to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of flour sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Thank the Lord for his word. Thank you, Rob. What would be a good day for you? What would be a day of really good news? I was asking this to Hannah yesterday and uh, come up with all sorts of suggestions. None of these are included here. You've won the lottery. Don't tell anybody you do the lottery. Wouldn't it be something if you didn't want people to know you did win it? You'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? But it's something you could handle. Or, you've passed your driving test. At last. Or, you've had the all clear from a battery of tests and scans and everything's okay. Or, at last, after some 20 years or more, finally, you've paid off the mortgage. That is quite something, isn't it? That would be a day of good news. Or, finally, we're getting engaged. Or, being overlooked for years, you've got the promotion that you really wanted. Or you could go much further. You could say, there is a global agreement, there is a cap on all bankers' bonuses. Now that would resonate well with us, wouldn't it? Or, there's peace being declared between Russia and the Ukraine. That would be a day of good news. Or, even greater, this afternoon Wales win against England. Yeah. Well, it's terribly subjective, isn't it? What is good news depends where you are. This passage that we have in front of us is rather obvious, uh, not so well known, but obvious with the key question, a rhetorical question that comes. Turn, keep your Bibles open in uh, 2 Kings 7. A day of good news. And let's just have a look at this and see how it applies to us uh, here this morning. From the reading, 
you're faced with a complete impossible situation, a besieged city. Now, if we know anything about history, and in our country, cities were walled, great fortresses. But the problem with that is, when you besiege, you can't get out, no one can get in, and if you're running out of supply of food and water, you're going to be in trouble. And there are many accounts in history of great battles and great conflicts. Such is the case here. And what's the context? The context is at least five things that compound their difficulty. The people of God. First of all, there's a severe drought. A seven-year drought made, predicted by Elisha. So Elisha, the prophet, is not the flavor of the month. Then there is civil war. There's something about civil war that polarizes people. And then this besieged city of Samaria. And fourthly, raging inflation. And if you look carefully, we don't have time to look into that to see the contrast of uh, how much, how inflated food becomes when it's in short supply. Food is a powerful weapon in warfare today as much as bombs and bullets. And then, sadly, cannibalism. The mothers put their babies up to eat. You can read, read that in uh, chapter 6, verses 26 to 29. It's a terrible dilemma. Uh, so that's the context. And you say the heading of the sermon is, this is a day of good news. doesn't seem like it. The enemy of Israel, King Aram, has mobilized all his troops, his entire army, to blockade the city. And this is what it is. This is the context. It's a bit like parts, literally, of parts of Syria this morning. There, there are people who are hemmed in, and the cameras have only got through once, and it's a harrowing, haunting scene where men and women and children are starving to death as we speak now. That's the situation there. No food can get in. It's a total impasse. No people can get out. It is desperate. That's a very strange heading to the sermon, therefore, a day of good news. Now, you've got the picture. It's pretty grim. <laughs> With all of that, you say it is, it is hopeless. And here's the interesting thing, and we don't have time to go into all the details, it's this. That the whole situation turns on four hopeless, nameless, helpless people. Four unnamed lepers. People, quite frankly, who, they just don't count. They just not, they don't fit in. So there they are, these men. You see it uh, as a very key verse in 7, and it's not so obvious unless you looked in detail. Here's looking 1 Kings 7 and verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They're at the entrance of the city gate. They're not inside, they're outside. The enemy's not fussed about them, they're lepers. Four men, and the whole situation turns on what they do. I want us just to, in the, in the simplest possible way, without offending your intelligence, to say that that can be a parable for us, that sometimes we seem like that when we think of the society in which we live. They're at the entrance of the city, there's no food supply, 
In other words, the meager resources that the people had inside were not given to the lepers. So, they are in the classic between a rock and a hard place. And life is hard and tough oftentimes. It is for them. Nameless, homeless, helpless. And that is compounded also by being socially an outcast, spiritually unclean. Now, can I, do I need to go any further to say that's pretty tough, isn't it? And yet, those very people, the whole situation is pivotal and it turns on the, the actions that they take. Last Wednesday, uh, the contact group had a visit from the leprosy mission. And uh, uh, it was very interesting when the question was asked, um, does leprosy affect people today? That was then, this is now. Uh, I just quote from the, this uh, pamphlet, and as you leave, you may want to pick some up. It's this, how many people are affected by leprosy? This is what they say. World Health Organization figures reveal that there are around a quarter of a million new cases of leprosy diagnosed globally each year. So it's a big deal still today. And it still carries an enormous social stigma. Some of us will remember Dr. John Harris, who spent his whole life um, working with uh, lepers, the leprosy con, set them up in, throughout um, uh, parts of Africa. And indeed, he died there. He told me once that it was Princess Diana that set um, the cause and the advancement of leprosy more than the scientists, more than the doctors, more than the uh, health organizations. And she walked into a, a hospital ward for lepers, sat with a leper and held his hand. That's all. And the media was there because she was good at capturing the media. If a princess, a beautiful princess, can do that, who are we to render people persona non grata? But we still do in parts of the world. So here it is. You've got the scene. Four people who have leprosy. I just want to suggest three very brief things that apply to us with that backdrop. Notice how realistic they are in their thinking. You've got the situation. So, there they are in verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Here's their thinking. Let's get into the thinking for the moment. And they say, Why stay here until we die? Our people are not going to feed us. The enemy don't care about us. If we say we will go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. They will not give us food. Our own people. And if we stay here, for sure we are going to die. So, what are we going to do? Wallow in self-pity, feel sorry for us, talk about how terrible the world is, and do nothing. Well, they could do so they say, if we stay here, we'll die. So let's go to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. Give ourselves up. If they spare us, and I doubt it, where will we live? We've got a chance. If they kill us, then we die. 
just think about their thinking for a moment. Can you just imagine this sort of conversation that takes place? What have we got to lose? What have we got to lose? But what have we got to gain? Weigh it up. Weigh it up. It's not the sort of paralysis of analysis. Just think about it and do nothing. No, no. Look. How easy it would be for them to think about, well, isn't life unfair? Isn't it terrible? Feel sorry for yourself. Overcome with self-pity. But in verse 4, you see, they narrow down their options. And the options are zero options. What a contrast so much to our thinking, my thinking as well today. Keep your options open. Don't commit yourself. Ours is a culture of, culture of multiple options. I'm trying to work out a pension. It is a nightmare. All these sort of options. And the danger is, don't do anything. Sometimes, like these four nameless people, we need to brace ourselves with a sense of realism. A, a good friend of many of us, former deacon of this church, had very serious illness. And he had private medical care. And at the end, uh, the professor, oncologist, the royal master, said, Mr. Watson, go home and put your house in order. He had zero option. And he did. Just some time, not much. And even if it's months, it's better than sitting and doing nothing. Be realistic in your thinking, whatever your circumstances are. Second thing. When did you last, come on, you... Fine, upstanding evangelical people take a risk. We become evangelistically risk-averse. I know it's a, there's two, two great Anglicans, John Stott, Lord Coggan, who loved the Anglican Church but struggled with it. Stotty, who said, why is it that we have such guilty silence? Why are we so quiet when there's so much to say? And Lord Coggan, when Charles and Caroline and Hannah and I went to hear his speech, not long before he died, on the Bible Reading Fellowship in Oxford, and he spoke about the Anglican Church like Arctic rivers, frozen at the mouth. When it comes to actually risking saying something, nothing to say. Now, look at this situation. It's almost a parable of, of where we are as the people of God. The risk in their actions. Let me just read it to you. At dusk, they got up. Can you imagine them going into the camp of the enemy? This is kamikaze movement. The Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, another man was there. They didn't know. Actually, it was no risk at all. But they didn't know. That's the point of a risk. You don't know. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of the chariots and the horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king 
of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled into the dusk, abandoning their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. A situation of utter chaos. Now, of course, the Bible commentators have all sorts of reasons and rationales why this should happen. For the moment, I'm not interested in that, other than the fact that they took a risk. There is, I think, in church life increasingly, a constant danger of being risk-averse. To settle for the lesser, for to... to Sit in the comfort zone. Now, you won't make mistakes, but you won't get the benefit of taking risks either. And LCBC, here we are in a refurbished church. The building is good, and it is a day of opportunity. It is a day to take risks. And it's so easy to say, well, you know, it's tough and so on and so on. Um, just look, let's look at one cross-reference. Turn to the book of Acts. Here is Paul and the horns of a dilemma. Let's come to the New Testament. I don't know if this reference, if, if, no, it won't come up before you. Acts 18. If you're looking at your Bible, it's page 114. Acts 18, 114. Here is the great entrepreneur, the Apostle Paul, the hero of many. Acts 18, Verse 9. He's in Corinth. People sometimes ask, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? And many commentators say, Corinth. A troublesome church. Well, here he is. Acts 18, verse 9. One night. The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Now you may find this hard to believe, but he says to Paul, don't be afraid. Clearly he was. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. If the Apostle Paul was guilty of that, chances are all of us are. I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So, Paul changes his diary. He stays there for another 18 months preaching the word of God. He wanted to leave. God said stay. He said it's hopeless. God says it isn't. Trust me. We can be, can't we, too comfortable. Maybe we're not desperate enough like these four people with leprosy. Perhaps we're too much like the older brother. Rembrandt painted that portrait and he captured him sleeping in the background, looking with cynicism and contempt on all the sins and all the impropriety of his younger brother. Isn't it terrible? Look at the world. Isn't it awful? But who is, who is the prodigal? The one who makes all the mistakes or the one who in cynicism stands back and does nothing? Playing it safe. You see the point, don't you? And it becomes a type of culture and the family home is hostile and this brother of yours he disassociates, pitiful and pathetic. He has so much, the elder brother. He is going to be the beneficiary of all the estates that is left. And he lives like a pauper. How pathetic is that, impoverished? 
four lepers then. The extremity is, of course, their opportunity. And lastly, yeah, you need to be realistic. Starts in our mind. Then you need to make calculated risks. Don't be silly, but it's a risk. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. And lastly, look at their reward. And we finally now come to the text, this text. And they said to each other, you know, I mean, they, look what they've done. They, look at verse 5. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered the tents and they ate and they drank. They were starving. They were nourished and they fed themselves. They did well. And they carried away silver and gold and clothes. We went off and hid them. We're thinking, we're investing for the future. They returned and entered another tent and did the same. Now they can retire and they don't need anybody. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This isn't right. This isn't right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. And moreover, if we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. So let's go at once and report it into the palace, the royal palace. And you know what? When you have such good news, when you as a, as a true believer in Jesus Christ, when you do that, brace yourself for people who are not going to believe you anyway. And they didn't believe them. It's a trap. Well, that's, that's our society now. We know that. But there is a reward in our enterprise. It is said that one in three people in the UK at some point are going to have cancer of some sort. Some which would prove to be fatal, as was the case with Tris Randall. Suppose, just suppose, somebody has a cure for every form of cancer. And suppose that person says, how clever am I? But I'm going to keep this to myself and it will die with me. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's, so t it's a terrible illustration, but I say to shock you, if we believe what we do in the Bible, that we have good news, that will deliver people beyond this grave and we don't say anything, that is infinitely worse. That's the point. What a transformation then. The very people who didn't count, who are the nobodies. Is there a deeper lesson for us? If we were to take time now to read Isaiah 53, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces, as they do to lepers. And by the way, what the lepers would do, this is an old school bell, they would, by the gate, they would ring the bell. And they would shout, unclean. And people would stay away. And yet they've got good news. And maybe now they ring the bell and they say, come, we've got good news for you. 
our Lord Jesus was crucified outside the gate. And by people in his day, he didn't count either. And so he has turned the world upside down with his gospel. It is forever a day of good news. A day of good news. Let me close. You have the challenge in verses 9 and 10. And you know what I'm going to say. You, you, you don't keep all the blessings. It is wrong. It is something that we need to repent of. Not feel guilty about. But enough to repent of so that we are now motivated by grace, not guilt. We need to ask ourselves, where is this compelling love that the love of Christ compels me to break the silence, to take the risk, to be enterprising? Or put it another way, where is that decision to say, I am going to be vulnerable at work. I want to tell people I'm a Christian. I know, I know what they're going to do and I know all of that stuff, but I'm going to do that. How surprised we may be. And when you do, you may say, and who's going to believe me? Like the four people with leprosy. And where is this compelling love? Where is this decision to be vulnerable? Where is the confidence that I go out from here and I say, and I'm not ignoring the sorrows and the sadnesses and the hurts and the disappointments of life. Indeed, I'm, I'm drawn into that even more. And yet I say, it is a day of good news and I am not going to keep it to myself. A day of good news. Let's be people who despite being marginalized, have the courage to speak. If you don't share it, you'll lose it. And how very strange, and we sang that song, Good News, Good News to You We Bring, that is what was spoken to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus. And they are the bottom of the pile. You read it up for yourself. You probably know that anyway. And if God can do that with the lesser, think what he can do with the greater. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that is for all people for all time. This is our day. This is a day of good news. Let's be resolved to trust God. Be realistic in our thinking. Be calculating, yes, but still take a risk. And let's be receptive to the rewards that God is going to give to surprise us by his love and power. We're going to sing our final hymn and it's, 
It's like a prayer, really. Show me your face. This prayer that wants to... If you can have the words up, Matt, thank you. you can, um, show me your face. One transient gleam of loveliness divine. And I shall never think or dream of other love. Say thine, or lesser light, dark and quite, or lower glories wane, the beautiful on earth. Think of those four people. Beautiful on earth will scarce seem beautiful again. Realistic in our thinking. Let's stand and sing this. May we share in the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all, evermore. Amen.